It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Order the podcast in case you cannot hear us live. As you're back to school, back to work, maybe can't pick up the phone. Andrew McCarthy will join us at the bottom of the hour. Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, you know what he did with the blind shake. He was the one who prosecuted him. He knows about Al-Qaeda and Gitmo and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed back in court. And what about that case and where we go from here? Uh, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is the same Dr. Fauci who in, 19, in 2012 said that even if a pandemic occurred, the research was worth it. He has always been an advocate of gain-of-function research, and he said even if it were to leak from a lab, infect a scientist, and cause a pandemic. Uh, unbelievable, right? Gotcha. More proof Anthony Fauci is fibbing and thinks we won't understand the facts. Most overrated doctor in America, American history, gets blown up by an explosive report in The Intercept. Now let's see if his admirers will ask him anything about it as his book comes out. We'll explain. Number two. Climate change poses an existential mm-hmm. threat to our lives, mm-hmm. to our economy. Mm-hmm. And the threat is here. It's not going to get any better. The question, can it get worse right. we can stop it from getting worse ida hits and joe says it means more money for you guessed it climate change i mean the irresponsible reconciliation reconciliation package that includes all that green stuff what stands in his way joe manchin and facts number one for days now we have been reporting on these planes sitting on the runway in mazari sharif in the north of afghanistan with americans waiting to bring them home but unable to leave the state department has refused to give them approval to land anywhere the state department says you need to find another destination country and it can't be the u.s either benjamin hall says it like it is reading a letter that Fox was able to acquire, working against Americans. That's what the State Department is doing as private citizens and retired vets mount efforts to rescue SIVs and citizens from the Taliban. And now we have confirmation. It is the State Department standing in their way. Their reasoning is pathetic, and their stakes could not be higher. Even Democrats are enraged. So here's a little more of the letter. The State Department refused to grant official approval for private evacuation from Afghanistan to land in third countries, even though the department conceded and the official authorization would likely be needed for planes to land in those nations. An email reviewed by Fox proves this. Furthermore, the State Department explicitly stated that charter flights, even those containing American citizens, cannot be allowed to land at Defense Department air bases. Why? The Biden administration's delaying a private evacuation ever has been a widespread source of frustration. But why won't they let them land? They're worried about security. So let's think about this. You're worried that the people and the vets on the ground didn't screen people properly. So when I saw that cargo plane filled with 850 people, the original day, the first day of evacuation when Kabul fell, were they all screened? Were we shooting and looking at their biometrics? Were we taking pictures of their irises? All those other people that have flown out, you say 122,000, was anyone even patted down? Don't you think there was a chance that the chaos 
and the insanity at that airport would allow somebody to slip through? Of course. Have many of the red lights gone on on a lot of these guys and these people, maybe women, I don't know, that said that they can't go forward? They didn't. They've been held back. They've been code red and pushed over. So if I tell you I got 19 Americans and 25 SIVs in a plane that I'm paying for, don't you think there's an airport and air base where you could put that plane in the corner until you decide that the American passports are real and authentic and they don't pose a threat? Of course the answer is. What else is going on? Why would the State Department not be willing to take a risk on a plane screened by special operators who are on the ground and they are not? In Mazari Sharif, there's four, and they haven't moved, and it's not the Taliban that is not allowing them to move. Here's Anthony Blinken, cut one. As we understand it, there are groups of people who are grouped together, some of whom have the appropriate travel documents, an American passport, um, uh, a, a green card, a visa, and others do not. And it's my understanding that the Taliban has not uh, denied uh, exit to anyone holding a valid document, but they have said that those without valid documents at this point can't leave. What's he talking about? I mean, these guys have been such a disaster from day one. They went on to say no charter flights are allowed to land in the military air base you mentioned in your communication with Samantha Power. In fact, no charters are allowed to land in DOD base in most, if not all, countries in the Middle Eastern region with the accession of Saudi Arabia. So I'd call Saudi Arabia number one. Number two is, what are you doing? You left Americans behind. Even President Biden says 90 percent of people have gotten out. We're worried about the 10 percent. You are not. You want to talk about climate change. You want to talk about a reconciliation package. America has not moved on from this. Ned Price, as you heard Stephen Hayes say, he's an inveterate liar yesterday. If these charters are seeking to go to a U.S. military installation, for example, we have to weigh not only the threat to those who may be on board, especially if they're American citizens uh, and others, Afghans to whom we have special commitment, but also the safety and security of the department personnel, U.S. military personnel, Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, you do. There's risk in everything. There's risk in leaving American citizens behind and taking your military out first, having to throw 5,000 people back in a city, in a civilian airport in the middle of the Taliban. I believe that's a risk, too. There's also a risk in having the Taliban work your security perimeter while you try to evacuate SIVs and figure out who's an American and who's not. Among the people that are fed up and frustrated and certainly willing to open up on Anthony Blinken and hopefully uh, draw some diplomatic blood is Richard Blumenthal and his office. He says this, the Democrat from Connecticut, the information we provide to the State Department is above and beyond what's usually required for Afghanistan. His assistant, Maria McLuhan, the spokesperson, wrote in an email this. They said the senator's office provided the State Department with the Plains Manifesto as early as August 30th to continue to update through Monday. And that Blinken was not correct in saying the passengers' identities could not be verified. So he is lying and a Democrat is pointing it out. Next, Senator Sheehan of New Hampshire, a Democrat. My office submitted 2,200 names to the department. Many contained of sufficient documentation that were still unable to evacuate women and girls. Even though all the paperwork was lined up, my office was submitted 2,200 names, obtained sufficient documentation, would not be allowed to leave. Here's Congressman Michael Waltz. This is something that he feels he's seen before. The incompetence, the ignorance of Iraq cut eight. 
But if you look at the actions that's going on in the ground, uh, it, this is this are a bunch of genocidal thugs uh, with a very warped interpretation of Sharia law, and with according to Biden's own intelligence community, with very close ties to Al Qaeda. They have been very clear that Al Qaeda fully intends to come roaring back in the wake of all of this and fully intends to attack the West again. So this, Larry, this is going to be a repeat of what we saw in Iraq. The same Obama-Biden crew yanked us out too fast, too soon, recklessly, and we, you know, years later, we're facing an ISIS caliphate the size of Indiana with an economy the size of Austria launching attacks around the world, except this time we've got far fewer, to, far fewer tools to deal with. Listen, I want to get to your calls, one 866 This is far more consequential, even than Iraq. Well, who knows? I mean, I could push back the other way, too. But look at what's happened. The Taliban has formed a government, and in your face, for the prisoners that President Obama let out, that we told you about the Bergdog Five, the Bergdahl Five, this, this guy who defected from the country, he deserted the country. We gave up four key prisoners. Obama gave up. Four higher-ups in the Taliban, but they said they weren't a threat. Remember, they told us al-Qaeda was a threat. They were actually trying to help us. Really? They're now part of the new Taliban government. This guy, Nori, Wazik, and Fazl. Don't worry. The rest of the government is really going to make you feel better. Saradon Haqqani has designated a global terrorist by Washington. The FBI is a $5 million bounty on his head. We'll be heading up the equivalent of the FBI for the Taliban. The new prime minister is Mullah Omar's son, Mullah Hassan Akud. Another senior member of the Akani Network, Khalid Haqqani, is a member of the Refugee Affairs. Isn't that nice? Malawi Mohammed Yahawi is the Taliban's military chief of, of insurgency and the oldest son of Mullah Omar. So he's got two sons working there. And then uh, Barardar the Butcher, the head of the Taliban's political office in Doha that we did the deals with, one of two deputy prime ministers. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a disaster, a outright disaster. And for those who say that, listen, we're out of there. We have such sophistication with intelligence. We don't need to be there on the ground. You're not paying attention. And I was drawn to a column today by Ali Soufan, who you know has done incredible work in intelligence unwrapping al-Qaeda, taking down high-value targets. He said this, Biden touts to over-horizon use of drones and cruise missiles to combat terrorist outposts in Afghanistan. But in 2015, dismantling one large al-Qaeda camp in Afghanistan near the Pakistan border required 63 coalition airstrikes and a ground force of 200 U.S. troops. The Afghan skies would need to be filled with U.S. military hardware to destroy any terrorist bases they're likely on their way, which is going to be coming from the Middle East. We're not going to have anyone on the ground, which leads me to what I said to you yesterday about Sue Gordon. Sue Gordon is a deputy director of national intelligence. Now she is not there, but she said this about what it now means that we're not on the ground anymore. We're going to have to double down on partnerships that will have to rely on non-traditional partners like Russia, China, Iran, and Pakistan. Have you ever seen a more incompetent State Department, a more incompetent White House, with more consequences to us coming up on 20 years of 9-11. You could not have scripted a biggest disaster and a bigger boost for al-Qaeda, ISIS, and our enemies. And it gets worse by the day. And as we mobilize citizens, who they do in their own volition, they're being stopped by our current government. 
flat-out anti-American behavior. When we come back to your calls and comments, BrianKilmead.com. Go in and just click on uh, comments and we can hear what you have to say. And if you want to be on live radio, international, 1-866-408-7669, you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Without personnel on the ground, we can't verify the accuracy of manifests, the identities of passengers, flight plans, or aviation security protocols. So this is a challenge, but one we are determined to work through. Uh, We're conducting a great deal of diplomacy on this as we speak. Oh, how unacceptable is that? We're doing a great deal of diplomacy after leaving a country with the Taliban, who named a series of terrorists as their ministers of defense, security, and interior, and everything else. Please, time is not on their side. Hundreds of Americans are left. If you believe some of these outside organizations, they believe thousands. And yet the State Department is examining, worried about security. Did you see the situation? Did you see the situation at that airport? Are you going to tell me they were properly screened? You also do get confirmation from the White House that most of the SIVs did not get out. Here is um, uh, Benjamin Hall's report about what they found in an email from the State Department. You heard a little of this to start the show. Here's the whole thing. Cut to. For days now, we have been reporting on these planes sitting on the runway in Mazar-e-Sharif in the north of Afghanistan with Americans waiting to bring them home but unable to leave. Well, now, leaked documents obtained exclusively by Fox News show that the State Department has refused to give them approval to land anywhere. In an email to retired Marine Eric Montalvo, who chartered these planes, the State Department says no charters are allowed to land at any DOD base, and most, if not all, countries in the Middle Eastern region, with the exception of perhaps Saudi Arabia, will allow charters to land. You need to find another destination country, and it can't be the U.S. either. Wow, fantastic. Isn't that nice? Instead of saying thanks for saving Americans because we don't have the assets to do so or we're hamstrung, you try to take credit when the first family was able to make it out through a land bridge. We're not saying the country involved and will stop you from flying out, even though the confirmation is virtually verified by Senator Blumenthal's staff, by Congressman from Oklahoma's staff. You know the congressman, uh, Mark Wayne Mullen, who has been back and forth over there, but you still do not feel comfortable doing that. And I'm just wondering what else is going on. I know that I'm missing something, flat out. 30,000 Afghans are now in the U.S. Again, they're rounding this out. 10,000 of those under, uh, underwent additional screening. 100 are under review for possibility of having connections to the Taliban. Two were sent to Kosovo for more evaluation. So you got them out and still had to do additional screening. What is wrong with doing that with the private flight? Set up a protocol and work with them. The White House also quick to say, I'm going to need some money. Remember they said they were going to save us money because we're out of Afghanistan? Well, we got to pay to get out. Who knows who we bribed to get out? Who knows how many so-called taxes and border checkpoints we had to go through? 
Now, the White House says we have to resettle up to 95,000 Afghans in the U.S. Some independent estimates say the number of SIV applicants and their families could well be over 100,000. Figure 250,000 per person minimum because they have full access to our welfare system, our Social Security system. Uh, They'll be, of course, housed for a while. And if you helped us out, glad to do it. But at this number, please stop telling me that you're saving me money. They are asking for billions of dollars now from Congress. And they'll tell Republicans, I thought you wanted wanted us to get out of Afghanistan. Know what I'm heartened by? And Britt Hume and I talked about this last night on Tucker. I'll be hosting Tucker tonight, too. Uh, Axios wrote this. As natural disasters ravaged the country and Texas enacted lightning rod and abortion, abortion restrictions, the, you know the these are my words, the administration really wanted to get off this Afghanistan topic. It was Afghanistan that held the vast share of online attention last week, according to their writers. Why this matters. Democrats are banking on Afghanistan chaos, having little impact on 2022. But by the numbers, Afghanistan stories generate 6.5 times more engagement on social media than those of the hurricane and remnants in the Northeast, the second biggest story last week. They can't be explained simply by a volume of coverage. Afghanistan stories generated a per article rate of 290 social media likes, comments, or shares compared with 54 interactions on storms. Eight of the 10 stories last week came from right-wing outlets, four from the Daily Wire, two from Fox News, one from Breitbart and Newsmax. Conservative media has been revving up the audiences just by telling the story. Nothing else. So Jen Psaki's been asked on the plane, what's going on? Why is the State Department standing in our way? Why do you think people are still paying attention? Cut six. And the president said that, you know, when asked if Washington will recognize the Taliban, he said that is a long way off. And I'm wondering what that really means in terms of timeline. I mean, is there is there anything you can share with us on the timeline? Well, as the president said, I think yesterday, uh, there's no uh, rush to recognition. It is really going to be dependent on what steps the Taliban takes. The world will be watching, the United States included, and they will be watching whether they allow for American citizens and citizens of other countries to depart, whether they allow individuals who want to leave the country to leave, how they treat women and girls around the country. Do you really think they care that the world is watching? Is she insane? Andrew McCarthy next. On that comment and more, as well as KSM, back at Gitmo Court. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. If 15 years of indefinite detention at Guantanamo have taught us anything, it's that... Justice for America cannot coexist with the abandonment of American values. Right. Uh, that's what we got to look out for. we got to worry about abandoning American values uh, and making sure that people like Khalid and Muhammad get, uh, get their due process, even though we're at war. And it should be uh, war rules. Uh, let's see what Andy McCarthy thinks. He actually tried the blind shake with the same extremist personality uh, and background and resume. And he did it successfully. Uh, so what do you think, Andy? Do you think that Gitmo will bring America a sense of justice? Well, Brian, I was a big – because I had prosecuted terrorism cases in the 90s and I understood 
uh, in a way, because I not doesn't make me a rocket scientist, just I was up close to it and experienced it. So I could see how dangerous it was to apply due process rules to people who were, you know, organizations like Al-Qaeda that were trying to kill us. So, you know, we'd give discovery to the defense and the next thing bin Laden would have it in Sudan or wherever he was hanging his hat at the time. So I, I was really in favor of the military commissions when President Bush first announced them. But they've been a complete failure, and a lot of that owes to the fact that the left attacked them from the beginning and made it very difficult for them to proceed. But, you know, you, you have to be honest. After 20 years, we haven't been able to complete a single case. I think they've had eight or nine guilty pleas, but they haven't been able to complete a single trial. They're still arguing over what the procedures are going to be, and it is a fair point that if these guys were tried in a civilian court, um, even though I think it would have been a disaster in terms of giving discovery to our enemies, the case would long ago have been tried and they would have been sentenced to death already. Because if, if, if you can say one thing about the terrorism prosecutions that we've done, it's that the civilian courts did a very good job on them. The judges were excellent. But we had to we had to digest the Masawi rants, even though it was in the sentencing phase, right? And we and now we also have to we have to also worry about the torture because the enhanced interrogation they got to try to throw out everything he said after enhanced interrogation. Do you think that'll stand? Do you think a judge will will throw that out? Well, I'd say two things about that, Brian. First of all, no matter where he got tried, that would be an issue. And what people need to understand is. The government isn't trying to introduce – the prosecutors aren't trying to introduce the statements that were the direct result of waterboarding. He made other statements later where he understood that it, he, you know, he was not required to speak, uh, and they were not you know, statements that were elicited by waterboarding. Those are the statements they're trying to get in. The defense is saying the cat was out of the bag already because he had been subjected to waterboarding. The, the prosecutors are saying – um, a second statement after a, you know, the, the standard Miranda law in civilian court is if you get a statement from somebody that's a bad statement because he didn't get Miranda warnings and then you give him Miranda warnings and he makes the, the same confession, you can get the second confession in. So that would be an issue no matter where the case was being tried. So that's one point I'd like to make. And the other one is people need to remember at the time 9-11 happened, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was under indictment already by the Justice Department for the al-Qaeda conspiracy. That was before 9-11 ever happened. So even if you lose some statements against him, it's not like we don't have a case on this guy. Um, right. So I'm worried that they have so um, derailed this prosecution – and they're still, even 20 years later, arguing under, about what rules it's going to take place under. We got one co-defendant in the case who yesterday was saying that um, because his lawyer had first met him, uh, I think in the last couple of weeks, uh, that he needs another 30 months to get ready for trial. You're I mean, kidding. You know, it's ridiculous at this point. I want you to hear yeah, what that, they say. That doesn't mean the judge is going to give it to him. Right. I just say, you know, I mean, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's a circus at this point. I, I want you to hear what they said this, uh, the defense attorney said this, this trial's about. 
One of the most important issues in the case is how the torture of these men is going to ultimately affect the trial. And trials mean evidence. And the destruction of evidence, the intentional destruction of evidence, takes away from the defense and really the American people information about what actually happened. So that's, that's what he thinks this whole thing is going to be about. Yeah, you know, Brian, this is what defense lawyers do. So, you know, before the blind shake, what happens before a trial is when you first arrest people and indict people, the government has the big bells and whistles press conference. And then you don't hear from the government again until the, the case starts to be made in court. And the people who talk to the press at that point are the defense lawyers, and they try to frame the case the way they want people to see it. I don't think these guys were tortured. The fact that they were waterboarded means that their statements are inadmissible and their will was overcome, but I don't think that amounted. We had this debate for years. I don't think that amounted to torture, but that's the way he wants to see the case. When I tried the blind shake, the big issue was that we had an informant in the group who uh, Bill Kunstler, the radical lawyer who was the blind shake's lawyer at the time, called an agent provocateur. And they, you know, they did a whole song and dance before the trial started about, you know, how we had used all these uh, underhanded tactics to get evidence. And, you know, they gab while at this point in time when there's no case going on. But then the case starts and the evidence starts to come in and nobody remembers the way the defense lawyers frame the case because, you know, by that point you're dealing with the evidence. So, you know, it's what they do, but I don't really pay it much mind. All right. I want you to hear that he evidently got into court and was smiling at his terror buddies and people in the back. So listen to what what the defense attorney was asked about. What's with the attitude? Uh, I'm sure he was smiling in court because he was happy to see us. The man's been in lockdown for as long as everyone else has been in lockdown. And to see people that he hasn't, his legal team that he hasn't seen in a long time, you know, is a cause for pleasure. Uh, is that a good explanation? I mean, I, I, it, it's his explanation. I mean, my explanation would be that, you know, he should have been put to death 10 years ago. And then, um, you know, he wouldn't be having a cause for pleasure with anyone at this point. And I don't think, you know, you have somebody who mass murders 3,000 Americans. Um, you know, if it were me, uh, I, I would try to rein my routine in when I went into court, but like not everybody's wired the same way. Right, absolutely. So they're only going to be tried at the same time. So it's a pretrial motion. It was the 40th one. Uh, what would be the next step? Well, yeah, the, the they'll get a ruling on how much, if any, of the confession evidence could come in, and they're still arguing about what discovery they're entitled to from the government. And then there's still some odds and ends about what, trial procedures are going to be uh, what the trial is actually going to look like. As I understand it, they are not going to commence the trial until at least the beginning of next year. And people who've looked at it have said they think the trial will take about a year. Having been in a number of long trials, I can tell you, Brian, that once the lawyers tell you that the case is going to take longer than three months, what they're really telling you is they have no idea how long it's going to take. Amazing. Uh, but, of course, it's in Gitmo, brand-new courtroom. We just don't use it. 39 people there. costs us $13 million a year. I don't understand what could cost $13 million, but that's the number they give us. Um, so that's where we're at right now. Uh, we're testing your terror knowledge. Uh, Andrew McCarthy, thanks so much. It, it's terrifying.
Right. It is because it's all coming back again because we just put the Taliban back in power and Al-Qaeda's in the cabinet. Yep. It's insane Terrible. what we've just done to ourselves. Yep. Uh, Andy, no, I agree. I know. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 I have a lot more to discuss. I didn't even talk to you about global warming, uh, climate change, and what Joe Biden was dealt with and was serenaded with yesterday in New Jersey and New York. I loved it. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The question is not if our entire world and our entire uh, society is going to shift because of climate change. It's a matter of how it's going to shift. We will see our infrastructure begin to crumble away. We will see us not, we will see, you know, the continuation proliferation of other future pandemics as well. And so that is how our life could change if we do nothing. Exactly. And when I want to know the latest in science, especially climate science, I go to the bartender from Queens. She's absolutely right. And Anderson Cooper sits there transfixed. She knows everything. But Joe Biden was saying, I have to go visit damage because I don't want to see anything of Kabul. I don't want to hear about Masary Sharif trap planes. So I have to go out to New Jersey and New York and see rubble. Listen to what he used that visit to talk about. Cut 18. And folks, the evidence clear. Climate change poses an existential mm-hmm. threat to our lives, uh-huh. to our economy. Mm-hmm. And the threat is here. It's not going to get any better. The question, can it get worse? Worse. We can stop it from getting worse. How? Really? If it wasn't for that stupid combustion engine and the fossil fuels, we'd be fine. If we would just agree to walk everywhere on solar panels or put wheels on the bottom of solar panels and skateboard. The problem with what he's saying is hurricanes are not more frequent. Uh, We are not looking at a situation where damage is done in greater numbers, except for the fact that we have better satellite photos now because we have satellites. We have better tracking equipment. We're actually in the air. And we are building these huge structures because people are very rich and want to live by the ocean. Now, I was struck by this. Bjorn Lomborg, who Denver says climate isn't changing, but also looks at the human factor in it, and it's hardly done, finished science and accepted, settled science. He said Atlantic hurricanes are not becoming more frequent. In fact, the frequency of hurricanes making landfall in the continental U.S. has declined since 1900. Airplanes and satellites have dramatically increased the number of storms and scientists can spot and see in a given day, making the frequency of landfall hurricanes, which was reliably documented even in 1900, a better stat than the total number of Atlantic hurricanes. Because we can pick it up, it doesn't mean there's more. It means we weren't picking them up if they're in the middle of the ocean where no one was. The frequency category of three, category three hurricanes and above hurricanes making landfall since 1900 is also trending downward. A July, uh, a July Nature paper finds that the increase in strong hurricanes you've heard so much about are not part of a century scale increase, but a recovery from a deep minimum Uh, A deep minimum in the 1960s and 1980s. Images of devastation caused by powerful storms can be heartbreaking. But remember, that development alongside the vulnerable U.S. coastline has expanded dramatically in the last 50 years. Many people live in the past of the destructive storms than did so even a few decades ago. Hence, more damage. 
settled science. You can scream all you want, but what you really want is infrastructure spending for school lunches, free community college, free preschool, free elder care, expanded Medicare, and to tax the rich more because they've had it too good for too long supporting our society. Please do not fall for it. Do not be afraid to question. Now they want to get to zero emissions in Glasgow in the next month or so when they go there. And that's what Joe Biden's talking about. But I'm heartened by the fact that Joe Manchin is not buying into it. This whole thing is supposed to give momentum to the reconciliation package and change our focus. Manchin reportedly told the White House yesterday uh, he will only greenlight as little as a trillion dollars in this new budget resolution. A little as a trillion. Now, a trillion's too much. $800 billion got us out of the 2008 collapse. But President Biden went 3.5, which is really 5.4 if you play it out. Could be, could be damaging to the president's build better agenda, of course. But guess what? Manchin doesn't think that all those other human infrastructure things are necessary. And if you decide to marginalize him or alienate him, the guy might just switch parties. You cannot live without him right now. He's also take, talking about means testing when it comes to a lot of these key proposals. Rich people should not be going to community college for free. We agree on that. Enhanced child tax credit for people that can afford to have children, which provides up to $300 per kid per month, could be sending the wrong message to poor families, don't you think? Meanwhile, the House and Senate committees here uh, have until September 15th to write specific legislation. If they want to get another reconciliation bill, there's only two the limit, which has to be money-related. If they're going to get it through, there has to be money budget-related, and it's got to be done before this uh, legislative session is done. I think the last week in September is when the bipartisan bill is going to come up for a vote. All those lefties say, I'm not going to vote for the bipartisan bill. It's not enough until you get the other bill that you jam down Republicans' throats. And now I'm telling you that Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin specifically are saying it's way too much. These people are going to have collective aneurysms. And it is going to be fun to watch because no one wants this. People want free money. If you say, I'm going to give you a trillion dollars, they'll be happy. If they're going to pay your mortgage, they're going to be happy. If they tell you you don't have to pay your rent, they're going to be happy. You say you don't have to pay your student loan, they're going to be happy. But our society doesn't work like that. There are societies like that, not here, and it doesn't work effectively ever. Now, in the bigger picture, the number one story that you've been clicking on, and I'm so proud of the American people for this, including Democrats, and that is on Afghanistan. The way we pulled out, the damage to us internationally, the way we did it without even informing our allies, not returning a call even to the U.K., to Boris Johnson. And now the Australians, the Brits, the French have people stuck behind enemy lines, including the Germans. I want you to hear what Tony Blair, the former prime minister, said yesterday about what he's witnessed with his good buddy Joe Biden and America. America has decided that for the foreseeable future— It is a very limited appetite for military engagement, which gives our allies anxiety and our opponents a belief that our time is over. No kidding. That's exactly what we've been saying. And this is with Brit Hume. I was on with Tucker last night and and I had Brit Hume as my lead guest just to put in perspective what the story is 
with Afghanistan. He fears people are going to lose interest. Cut 13. We've got people being being helped to get out by individual groups. You've got disputes about who's responsible, who helped and who didn't. You've got the situation in Masri Sharif with airplanes sitting on the ground with Americans on them. The State Department may not want to clear them out because they don't know who else is on the planes. We've certainly seen instance after instance where they said they were going to do this and they did something else. They, and the most, you know, the most conspicuous one which I think Joe Biden will never live down, was when he promised in a televised interview that we would stay there until we got all the Americans out, and then he didn't do that. This is a stain, I think, that it is going to be a long, very long time wearing off if indeed it ever does. I suspect that it never will. I hope not, uh, and I hope it's not when we're writing his legacy or doing his uh, bio, uh, bio uh, documentary for a history channel. It's got to be in 2022, because everywhere you look, there's incompetence. The coronavirus, he told us it was done in July. We all thought so. The Delta virus comes back, realizing he's losing the narrative. He comes up with some booster scenario. We need a booster. And I got to make the announcement at noon in the middle of the day to change everyone's mind. And it's so out of, out of sorts with the FDA and the science, two FDA members resign. Do we need a booster or do we not need a booster? Now, tomorrow, he is going to give an outline, a six-point plan for America on the pandemic. It's going to be a series of mandates. Did you hear the chance of blank Joe Biden at the football games and college campuses? That's how they feel. You put in mandates, mask and vaccine, it's going to get worse. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. All right, I got to come back. Hi, everybody. Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest minutes of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, in a matter of minutes, we're going to be with uh, Jennifer Griffin, uh, national security correspondent, and Congressman Mark Wayne Moen uh, of Oklahoma, who's done such great work uh, putting his personal safety at risk in order to help so many people because the State Department and Defense Department doesn't seem willing to do that. We're good now, I guess, and we, we, uh, we, leave, we bring 90% uh, with us after a war, not 100. It used to be 100 I guess we've changed philosophies. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is the same Dr. Fauci who in 2012 said that even if a pandemic occurred, the research was worth it. He has always been an advocate of -of gain-of-function research, and he said even if it were to leak from a lab, infect a scientist, and cause a pandemic... Uh, that is uh, Rand Paul reading the Intercept report, which got 900 pages of documents we did not seen before, shows that Anthony Fauci, the NIH, and others were involved in gain-of-function research, the exact opposite of what he's been told. Will anybody outside Fox ask him that question? Number two. Climate change poses an existential mm-hmm. threat to our lives, to our economy, and the threat is here. It's not going to get any better. The question, can't it get worse right uh we can stop it from getting worse yeah that's right uh anytime there's a hurricane it's climate change and he's going to need more money ida hits and joe says it means more than money you guessed it climate change is irresponsible his irresponsible reconciliation package is now queued up what stands in his way the facts and joe manchin 
For days now, we have been reporting on these planes sitting on the runway in Mazar-e-Sharif in the north of Afghanistan with Americans waiting to bring them home but unable to leave. The State Department has refused to give them approval to land anywhere. The State Department says you need to find another destination country and it can't be the U.S. either. Unbelievable. That's Benjamin Hall reporting uh, from an email the Fox was able to acquire working against Americans. That's what the State Department's doing as private citizens and retired vets mount efforts to rescue SIVs and citizens from the Taliban. Now we have confirmation the State Department standing in the way. The reasoning is pathetic and stakes could not be higher. It's life and death. And even Democrats are upset from Senator Shaheen to Senator Blumenthal. They are not buying the State Department's explanation. Uh, joining us now is Jennifer Griffin. Jennifer, what is defense? What is state doing to get people out? Uh, we only see outside groups helping. Well, Brian, I think that that is, unfortunately, since the U.S. has pulled out of Afghanistan, a lot of the efforts have now gone to a clandestine nature. And uh, as you can imagine, the U.S. government cannot talk about what it is doing uh, to help get get the um, Americans who are left behind as well as allies. Uh, but I can tell you from personal knowledge, I know that there is coordination and that uh, despite some of the cases that you've been highlighting in recent days, uh, that it is a massive uh, government effort, along with the, the very, very noble veterans groups who are out there uh, serving as spotters for a lot of these Americans. So it is a very complicated picture. There's a lot of stuff that people can't talk about right now that is going on. And uh, but I know with firsthand knowledge that it is much more complicated than it's being presented, that the U.S. government is doing nothing. That is not accurate. Well, do you think they feel the urgency? Yeah, I know they feel the urgency. Um, I know a lot of people working on this directly. I talk to them on a daily basis, and there's a very great sense of urgency. But if I could just take that case of the the six planes, uh, commercial planes that yeah. are on the ground in Mazar, that's a really complicated situation because on the one hand, you have uh, manifests where you know who probably nine-tenths of the people on board are because they have been helped onto those planes through intermediaries who are working with some of uh, these veteran groups and NGOs. They are legitimate people who are in danger, who need to get out. And let's also clarify one thing. They are not sitting on the planes. They are in safe houses in Mazar, and they are going to be told to go to the airport as soon as the planes are uh, um, available to take off. The problem is, think of this from the State Department's perspective. You don't have anyone on the ground who can verify that the Taliban has not slipped somebody onto those planes who is not supposed to be on those planes. The NGOs and the veterans groups do not have people on the ground. They are relying on Afghan intermediaries who are liaising with the Taliban, who is now serving as the TSA at Mazar-e-Sharif. And so how do you know that that every person on that flight is uh, is who they say they are. How do you know that one is not wearing really? a suicide vest? How do you know that that plane is not going to be turned into a weapon like we saw 20 years ago on 9-11? And you, you as the State Department are supposed to give uh, permission for them to fly to one of our most sensitive air bases in Qatar, Al-Udid, and say that you're going to just um, let a commercial plane that you have not been able to verify who's on board. There's a bomb placed underneath 
in the hold. Don't you think that al-Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban would love to see commercial planes blow up the, the, in the days before 9-11? So I think we really need to be but, you know, uh, Jen, Jen, that's about- fine. That's fine. But how, how much different is that uh, than what we saw at Kabul? You're going to tell me Big that difference. those people Big with 800 difference. people yeah. sitting in a cargo jet, we know what they, what they were about? We're still shooting yeah. their irises trying to find out who they are. Yeah, but you know what? What I am going to say, it's a completely different. When the U.S. military and the State Department and uh, multiple agencies were at the airport, including the CIA, uh, uh, getting people through those gates – was it chaotic in the initial days, and did some people get through who who we weren't quite sure who they were, and maybe on that first flight with 800 people, they needed to figure out who those people were afterwards? But after after you know after that chaotic initial 48 hours, you had people. One of the reasons all the veterans groups and the NGOs were so frustrated, and so many senators were frustrated, was that. Uh, the 82nd Airborne and the Marines at the gate with the State Department by their side couldn't let all the people through because they were vetting them. Now, you couldn't vet. You had spotters. It was such a complicated picture at those gates. One of the frustrations and the reasons people are left behind is that they weren't just opening the gates and letting anyone through. They were working uh, – I've talked to the people who were doing this vetting at the gates, and it was a very, very – pressured, complicated process. But no, the reason they didn't fly anyone directly to the States is that then when they did land in Qatar, they, uh, they man- first of all, they did pat them down before they got on the military planes. They were not allowed to bring any luggage with them. They had cell phones. They had to leave their, their um, laptops behind. They had to leave luggage behind. They only had the clothes on them. They were padded down so you knew they didn't have explosives on them. And then the, the biometric vetting process started again once they got to Qatar. And then a second time when they got to Ramstein but, but, but he, or Sigonella. But Jen, I talked to people in Qatar over the weekend, and I know you talk to people constantly. They still don't know who these people are, and they're still getting uh, hits. And if you say there's 25 people that are via SIVs and 19 Americans, that's so much easier than 800 people or 200 people to go through it. And knowing there's risk in this operation because they screwed it up so much, why would they risk more American lives? Why would they not be working with these outside people? Who's saying that they aren't? Brian. They aren't. I, I'm telling you right now. I talked to Chris Mills. I, I talked to the Pineapple Group this morning. I think you need to circle back. I think that, Brian, uh, there's a complete contradiction in saying that we should let six planes with people that we don't know completely who are on board land at a U.S. air base uh, at a time when we are at a heightened terror alert status. Now, if you're talking about the people who came out before the U.S. military left uh, Afghanistan, that is why they were not flown directly to the states, because they had to vet them. And that is why when they are pinged, they're being taken to Kosovo to a U.S. military base where they can be held for up to a year before they figure out what to do with them. Uh, The number of pings have been relatively small. I was in Ramstein and saw how they were doing uh, the screening this weekend. And uh, I was talking to the CPB, the FBI agents. I mean, are you telling me those guys are letting people through? I don't think so. Well, they, at, think at, so. One, at one point, since they screwed up this mission from A to Z so, uh, so tremendously, 
now that Americans are stuck and that one American outside Kabul has gotten out, you have to get, take a certain amount of risk to get them out because every day matters. And we've also seen the video of them trying to get through checkpoints. The Taliban been anything but cooperative. So there's got to be a certain amount of risk. There's certain things you could do rather than we are not letting any plane out. And then they're forced to walk by land in Brian, a family why, of four. There's one family why, of four that's gotten out in 48 hours. Why, why isn't it much safer to have them go uh, go to the border, the people who are supposed to be on those planes, then at least you know that plane is not going to be weaponized? Why not create uh, a, a, a land corridor? You're going to need permission from the Taliban. Unfortunately, they're in control. And you're, it's going to be a complicated uh, Jen, set of permissions. Jen, but that, that a corridor would have been gonna, great. That's a what's co- going to happen. That's a corridor would have been great to Bagram. A corridor would have been great to a land. Where are we going? Pakistan? Uh, by land? And now if you you're going to ask the Taliban for a what? land you corridor, you mean uh, yeah. as they're taking a, as they're bombing the Northern Alliance? But uh, now, so as that, they walk yeah. to Pakistan, what is more uh, labor intensive? A land bridge or having a official walk on a plane and check IDs. If you're going to get an official involved, go to Masary Sharif, and if you want to check IDs and manifest in person rather than through FaceTime, then go do it. Rather than they don't want to put one more uh, American soldier on the ground, obviously. What's going to happen when you have a hostage situation? You send five American consular officers in and the Taliban or ISIS or al-Qaeda decide that they're going to be a bargaining chip because they're not getting enough humanitarian They have aid. all these the are, bargaining chips. These are very complicated uh, issues. Unfortunately, we are left working through the Qataris, and and that is that is the situation that uh, the State Department is finding itself in. I'm not saying this is a good situation. I'm not saying we ever should have pulled out of Afghanistan. I think it's been a complete mess. However, I do think we need to be honest and accurate in terms of what we know to be true and what the decision making is and what is possible under the current can you please real can you can you tell me a good decision that has been made i mean to get our people out to leave 10 well, percent of our people out behind let's back up for a minute yeah. let's back up for a minute because um let's look at the numbers Six thousand americans about 5800 to six thousand were taken out and they were they were taken out through the Kabul airport. That's pretty impressive when you think that only 100 to 150 are left. It's terrible for those 100 or 150. The Americans will get them out. I guarantee you. Uh, and I guarantee you that they are not the most vulnerable to Taliban attack. The people who are vulnerable to Taliban attack are the people who fought alongside the US military, the people who were translators exactly. who were left behind. And those are, you're talking after 20 is, years of war, is, you're talking is this tens statement of correct, thousands Jen? of people. Is this statement tens correct? Is this statement correct? Most SIVs did not get out because that's what the State Department said. Most of the SIVs did get out. So who got out? Like 122,000 people, according to you them, know, got out. Funny. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I met a whole bunch of um, SIVs and special forces who did get out when I went to three military bases this weekend, and I was allowed to do a random sampling of anyone I wanted to talk to. There were a lot of American guards, uh, people with paperwork. There were actually a lot of SIVs in those European bases. Um, I'm not saying it's the, it's all of them. After 20 years or more, you can imagine there are tens of thousands of people who worked with the U.S. military and government. So a lot of those people were 
were left behind, no doubt. But also, let's not forget that when the Afghan National Army fell apart, those are all people who risked their lives and worked with the U.S military and government, but they weren't technically SIVs because they were supposed to stay and defend their country. So they don't have any paperwork. And so is the U.S. supposed right. to airlift 300,000 Afghan troops out who then stopped well, fighting we, and we cut there was, with the Taliban? We know there was 12,000 left in Kabul. Let, and- me just, let me just mention one other thing, Brian, if we're going to talk facts here. One thing I did report yesterday and confirmed with multiple government agencies is that the CIA got 30,000 of their allies and people who worked with the U.S. government out through those airlift flights from Kabul airport over the 17 days that we were there. 30,000. That's pretty freaking impressive by anyone's measures. And I confirmed that uh, with three different government agencies. So you can't have it both ways and say, we don't know who any of these people are. We're not checking who they are. We're just la- bringing them all to the U.S. And then that we well, are it, not but letting the standard, people get on Their standard so we, in Masary Sharif is a much different standard than the one in the Kabul airport. After, yeah, because it's after the U.S. military left. There was no ability. There is no ability on the ground to know who is on those planes. I'm sorry. You have to be realistic. After the U.S. military pulled out of the Kabul airport, everything so you, changed. So, so if you start mixing, talking about the group, I'm not mixing that anything. You are. You're I'm not. I'm talking. Conflating groups. You're saying that we don't know who the people are who are in Qatar and in. Ramstein, how many people do you think they fact, knew when they left Kabul? Up. How many people? How many IDs do you think they knew? They set up, but that's why they set up this screening system. They're screened three times before they're brought to the U.S. That's what I went to witness this weekend. So, I'm just saying we have to be honest about what the U.S. government is capable of do you, doing do th- and what they're not. Do capable you think of doing the con- right you think the State Department's been honest? I'm not here to defend the State Department. I think the State Department has, uh, for four years, I covered the SIV process and how both the Trump administration and the Biden administration uh, dragged their heels on the SIV process. It started with the Trump administration. I know. You know, chapter and verse. Yeah, unfortunately, I got 10 seconds left. Uh, Yeah. I'm saying that the State Department was in charge of that process and the SIV process was messed up for four years. Back in a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. When Dr. Fauci first heard about this on January 31st, the emails were being exchanged all through the night, and I think he was truly worried that this came from the lab. That's when the cover-up began. Immediately the next day, all of a sudden, four or five virologists were saying, it looks like gain-of-function, it looks like it came out of the lab. And then all of a sudden, the next morning, things are changing. Most of the rest of the emails have been redacted, so we haven't gotten the full discussion of how he convinced them to change their position. But you have to realize this is the same Dr. Fauci who in in 2012 said that even if a pandemic occurred, the research was worth it. He has always been an advocate of -of gain-of-function research, and he said even if it were to leak from a lab, infect a scientist, and cause a pandemic. 
And what's amazing is if you read the Intercept report, they're just trying to get things like we know the uh, this this uh, Peter Daszak group. They were working with a type of conditions that most dentists office work with instead of extreme conditions because it could call it a global pandemic. And on top of that, they said they know when they work with bats, they bite and they keep records of people that get bitten by bats. Now, if these bats are infected, that person becomes a, uh, a terror weapon. Can we get the records of who got bitten by bats? I can't believe I'm saying that, but it really will unwind our future. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The problem is, think of this from the State Department's perspective. You don't have anyone on the ground who can verify that the Taliban has not slipped somebody onto those planes who is not supposed to be on those planes. The NGOs and the veterans groups do not have people on the ground. They are relying on Afghan intermediaries who are liaising with the Taliban, who is now serving as the TSA at Mazar-e-Sharif. And so how do you know that that every person on that flight is uh, is who they say they are? How do you know that one is not wearing really? a suicide vest? How do you know that that plane is not going to be turned into a weapon like we saw 20 years ago on 9-11? And you, you as the State Department are supposed to give uh, permission for them to fly to one of our most sensitive air bases in Qatar. Don't you think that Al Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban would love to see commercial planes blow up the, the, in the days before 9/11? Uh, Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, uh, that is the explanation the state of uh, the state and the uh, Pentagon is giving for not giving permission for the uh, planes to leave Mazari Sharif. Uh, Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen has put into action. Uh, putting together and working with outside groups in order to save Americans and SIVs from what would probably be a certain life of hell or death. Congressman, welcome back. I just wanted you to respond to what Jennifer Griffin just told me of why the State Department is not letting you uh, put people on those planes. Well, right now, I wouldn't believe anything the State Department is saying. I want to be very clear with that. The State Department has fought us every step of the way from getting people in at Hakaya, which was the international airport in, in Kabul, uh, to getting people out and getting people into other countries, and including in Mez, Mez Sharif is what they call it, short as Mez. And let me tell you, we've I've, I personally have had this conversation with the State Department. I have personally had this conversation. This isn't secondhand. This is me, because we have three planes out in, in Mez Sharif that is designated, that were designated to leave. In fact, Mariam and her three kids that were uh, that we just recently got out, to which the State Department claimed they helped to get out, and they didn't whatsoever. That's an out-and-out out lie. Uh, the only thing they did was receive them when they came across the bridge. But my guys, my team that I was been blessed enough to work with through the Sentinel Group, who is non-political, they're just or Sentinel Foundation, which are just, I mean, this is what these guys do. There's a phenomenal group of guys. They they actually walked across a bridge and was trying to talk to the Taliban to get her released. But we we also have three planes there that was designated to leave. We pulled Miriam and her four ki- and her three kids off of one of them. And this is what I told the State Department because they were using the same stuff too that they need to know who's on the manifest sheet. I said that's fine. I said how about we do this? How about we have one plane that just has AMSETs, which are American citizens for for short called AMSETs. And, and SIVs, uh, special immigration visa holders, and the, the people that already have their paperwork. I said, we'll have a manifest sheet. We'll have a picture of all their paperwork. We'll have a picture of the passports, and we'll send it to you for a manifest sheet, and we'll just have them on there. No refugees, nothing else. Just give us clearance and leave. 
They said they couldn't do that because they said they couldn't verify. And I said, we'll verify it. We'll send you a copy of it, and, and, and we won't bring them directly into the United States. We'll take them to another country, and I can't tell you the country, because, but they had agreed to take them, and then they could go through another immigration process there to make sure we verified who they were. But we have pictures. The SIV has pictures just like a – just not similar like a passport, but they have a picture attached to the SIV, and so you can verify facial recognition on it. And then the passports are passports. These are passports that are ancestors, that are Americans, and they wouldn't even do that. So what she is saying is an absolute lie and, and, and nothing but an excuse for them not to work. Because what they told me was, quote, we don't control the airspace over, um, over uh, Afghanistan anymore. That's what they told me. We don't control the airspace over Afghanistan, and so we can't help you. It's inexcusable. And the thing is, they say, well— you know, we were able to screen people before they left the Kabul airport. I find that hard to believe. They're still trying to they figure did, out who they, they are in Qatar. They absolutely did not screen people before they left. They were putting people on there as fast as they can, and they, and they were flying out a lot of planes that were half empty. Um, I know guys that were personally putting people on the plane, and they said this is what they told me because they were on the ground because we were working with them. And they said it is like the Wild West out here. All you got to do is just run them through the door. They, you get them from the State Department, they put a white band on them, and if they put a band on their on their wrist, you can put them on the plane, and that's it. Um, and, and so for them not to allow SIVs or AMSETs to even leave uh, Mezzer Sharif is it will just tell you right there how how hard they're trying to just get this story off the books because they don't want anything to do with it. They want to wash their hands clean of Afghanistan. And that's including wash your hands, their hands clean of Americans and SIVs that these guys gave up a lot to work for the American government while we were over there. And they're willing to walk away from all just to just to end this bad story that won't leave uh, uh, President Biden because this is his fault and Secretary Blinken's fault. And the blood of the Americans that are going to be lost and the SIVs that are going to be lost because of it is 100 percent on their hands. So they're mad at you because you're trying to take oh, action. After us too. They, they've been coming after us, Brian, completely uh, full board, and they're doing this because they know I know the truth because I was on the phone with them. I was talking to them. We were dealing with it. In fact, the night of the 29th or actually the morning of the 30th, they were apologizing to me. I was on the, on the phone with the operations center, and so I know the conversations are recorded. And, I, and they know they're recorded. The lady that I talked to for eight hours trying to get some Americans uh, to, uh, through a gate to which they said they were negotiating with the Taliban, which, by the way, how do you negotiate with a terrorist organization? How, 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 since when did Americans negotiate with a terrorist organization? In fact, that's against the law to do it. But well, somehow I, I know Trump started it. Ambassador Khalizad led it, and he's been a disaster, and he's, he's yeah, straddled two disaster. administrations. Yes, and it's been absolutely a, a disaster, but they were telling us that they were negotiating with them to try to get them the passage and kept saying for us to go up there and try to go through the gate again, and it wasn't happening. The Taliban threatened to kill them. One time they stuck, the, they stuck a gun literally to the young lady's head and said they were going to kill her while she was holding her two-year-old baby in her hands, and I got a recording of it of the baby begins to cry. It would literally will break your heart, and at the same time, the State Department says they're willing to clear them. And they never could. And then the, then the State Department, the same State Department, said, Rep. Mullen, we're sorry, but is there another way for you to get them out? The gate's closed. And I said, you, you do what? They said the gate's closed. The Taliban won't reopen. And I said, it was never open. How can you say it was closed? They said, we're sorry. We're, getting, we're beginning the evacuation. This was early morning of the 30th. 
they had already decided they were going to pull out a day early and be willing to leave all the other Americans that were there. And they did it. And she said, I'm sorry, do you have another way out? And fortunately, we had already started working on rat lines. And I say we, the group we were working with, we had already started working on rat lines and negotiating with the other countries to allow uh, AMSETs to come across. It is It is just what's going on like right now. We're not even doing an after action report. It's happening. So this is we're what, doing it as we speak. Yeah, we're the, doing it as we speak right now. You, so we, I, I don't I know you don't want to give up that other country, but do you believe the path you took to get the family of four out is still open and and viable? Um, yes, we are working with with in there, and the ambassador in that country at first, him and I didn't see eye to eye, but we are working together now, and uh, and and hit and the people there that work in the embassy, a lot of them have actually been volunteering their time. Uh, and so, yes, we they're still working. In fact, currently we have a, a young lady um, that has two kids that we're trying to get out, and one of them has has a, a really major medical emergency. She she's a younger a younger girl, and she has severe infections in her legs, and she can't walk. And we she was actually one that we tried to get um, through Hakaya because she was in Kabul. And uh, the State Department wouldn't help us, and we told them that. We told them we've got one young lady that has severe medical e- issues, and they won't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't help us get her through the gate. Um, and so we're trying to get her right now. At, um, what time is it there? No, we we have until six o'clock because that's when the Taliban supposedly closes the gate. Um, we have until six o'clock to get her out today, and we're we're trying to we're literally as we speak negotiating, trying to get her out. So, As we're talking right now, Brian, we're actively trying to get her out. Wow. Uh, so how many Americans do you think that you've been in contact with uh, uh, that are still in country? We have, you know, the State Department is saying 100, but they also said that they got every American out that wanted to get out, and that's a flat lie. They also said it was a perfectly executed uh, plan, which was a flat lie. It was a complete disaster. But they're saying 100, and I'm telling you that's not accurate. We We currently have right now. We have 23 AMSETs in, in, in our possession that we have in, if you can call it safe houses, they're really nothing safe, but we in, in secure locations to which we're having to get uh, supplies for, uh, I mean, anywhere from diapers to milk um, to water to everything else. And, and thank, thank God private organizations um, are stepping up where our, where our government failed. Private organizations, nonprofits are stepping up and funding all this. And, um, and so we have 23, and I got five more yesterday, even though we don't have them in possession. So that would be a total of 28. And if the government is saying that they have 100, there's no way that I have a quarter of them myself. They're, they're, I say myself, my, our group that I'm working with, uh, the, the Sentinel Foundation, who's, done, as I said, doing a great job. There's no way that, that we have a quarter of the Americans because there's a lot of other organizations that we're actually working with. It's funny because we've all come together and using each, other, each other's assets and, and, um, and knowledge because uh, things change fluently every day because of the, because of the way the Taliban operate. And, uh, and, so, and so we know of 50 um, that we know of fit locations of 50 AMSETs, but we don't have, they're not in our, in our possession. So there, there's, I would say there, there's at least over 300. And, and, and it's going to be nearly impossible for us to get them all out, especially having to fight the government every, literally every step of the way. I was told one time, Brian, by an ambassador 
that – and once again, this will be recorded because I called through the operations center, which the operations center is equivalent to the situation room for the president. The operations center is that for the State Department. And I called through them, and the, and the ambassador that I was talking to literally told me – literally told me, Brian, said, I have been told not to assist you in any way. And I said, by who? And they said, by D.C. And I said, D.C.'s told you not to assist me in any way. Yes, Mr. Mullen, we're sorry. I can't assist you in any way. I said, you mean they're t- I'm trying to get Americans out, and they're telling you not to assist me in any way. And he says, yes, I'm sorry. I can't help you. That's an ambassador of a country that we were trying to get some, uh, some Americans through. Not SIVs, not refugees, just Americans through. And he was told by, the, by Washington, D.C. not to assist us. And I told, him, I told him, I said, who told you that? He wouldn't tell me. I said, sir, either you tell me. Or you're going to hear from me in a different capacity at some point, and we're going to get the name eventually because people need to be held accountable for what they're doing right now. And this administration needs to be held accountable. And and and, and uh, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, General Milley, General McKenzie, all of them need to be held accountable for what they're doing because it's unexcusable. So this is what uh, Lloyd Austin said yesterday, who seems way over his head every time he speaks. Cut five. Now with no troops and no ground-based intelligence in Afghanistan, how will the U.S. be able to conduct and stop, conduct operations and stop terrorism threats with only over-the-horizon capabilities? Well, there's no question that it will be more difficult uh, to identify and engage uh, threats that emanate from the region, but we're committed to making sure that, that uh, uh, threats are not allowed to develop and, and uh, create, uh, con- create uh, uh, significant challenges for us in the homeland. Right. And the government that's not going to let that develop has two Haqqani members who are affiliated with al-Qaeda and have killed Americans in their cabinet and four of the yeah. five Gitmo swap for Bo Bergdahl uh, detainees uh, in their cabinet and uh, Barador the Butcher as uh, as a deputy vice president. So don't yeah. worry about it. We got over the horizon capabilities. We have we have zero capability. We have zero capability. Um, th- listen, this is the same government that was telling you uh, that they don't have the ability to go outside of Hakaya to pick up American citizens. When you had Germany, you had France, and you had Brits yep. going outside picking up their citizens. And they're saying that it wasn't safe for us, but these other countries were doing it. I had Brian. I had a. I had. We had 20 Americans that were at the uh, that were at a university there that needed help getting out. And we originally had went in to try helping get them out. And we had to use Cutter, the ambassador of Cutter, actually help drive them to the airport. I mean, he 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 himself led the convoy to put the, to go through the, the the checkpoints because, mind you, there's three checkpoints. There was three checkpoints that you had to go through before you get to the Hakai Airport. And so, when they when they said that anybody that wanted to get out could get out, most of them couldn't even make it there because you had to pay at each one of those checkpoints a tax, and those taxes ranged from anywhere from uh, a few hundred dollars to a thousand dollars. In fact, one time they were charging a thousand dollars a person to go through. Right. Most people aren't carrying that kind of cash. I mean, this is a pretty poor country, so you couldn't just get there if you wanted to. And so that's why the other countries were driving. And now he's saying that uh, that we have the capability for over the horizon watch for to, to eliminate threats. Give me a break. I, I don't right. believe a thing 
that they're saying right now. Well, Congressman, keep on pushing back. Uh, Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, a Republican out of Oklahoma, uh, he serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And uh, one of your other things is uh, you serve on the Environmental and Climate Change Committee because they're looking to say climate change is uh, also oh. something that needs trillions of dollars. Congressman, uh, yeah. we'll talk about that at a different time. But thanks so much for what yes, you're sir. doing. Brian, thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting this story not die. I appreciate you Absolutely. making it a priority. Yep, not a chance. Right. Uh, back in a moment with your calls. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. My message to him is he's going to testify before our committee on foreign affairs next week. I want an explanation of what they were thinking. I want an explanation of who made that that comment. They did nothing to help the citizens from my district. They all didn't right. know anything about it until they were on the border. <laughs> and and uh, it's just shameful that we have to have Americans go in and do what our own government is not willing to do. And that is Ronnie Jackson. Yeah, as you know, the doctor to the president from uh, the Bushes uh, to the Obamas uh, to the Trumps. And now he's a congressman from Texas, and he's doing the best he can to help these families out that are reaching out to him because he's got that military background. I believe he's a colonel. And he's got the um, – and and a lot of – so many in Texas do serve and find themselves uh, stuck in Afghanistan. And that's whose message was really to, uh, to Mayorkas, who's Homeland Security secretary. And here's what he was talking about, cut nine. So how many people have been removed from the United States for showing up on one of these lists? We're dealing with very, very few people that have given us any cause uh, for concern. The Taliban, when they took control, released thousands of prisoners, including members of ISIS and al-Qaeda. Can you guarantee that none of those prisoners are making their way into the United States? I can guarantee you that we are doing everything possible to make sure that they don't. And we have no evidence that they have. Right. Uh, that's an odd question. Out of all the tens of thousands, worry about those uh, maybe 500 prisoners, but who knows? Uh, maybe maybe there's more. 5,000 were let down to the Trump team and in a prisoner swap for 1,000 Afghans. So evidently that swap took place, but there were still thousands, we believe, still in the Bagram prison. So they don't know. Uh, and to, to, to say we can't let these private groups know because they're not able to screen them personally because they decided to get everybody out by a date certain is unacceptable. We should not be accepting it. Leaving 10% of Americans behind should not be our new credo. Hope you agree. See you on Tucker tonight. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Thanks Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming up in a matter of moments, uh, Gerard Baker is going to be here. He's editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal, and he's talking about the Joe Biden doctrine, or lack thereof. His column really stood out because Joe Biden, over the last month or so, has revealed that he really stands for nothing. And he promised just the opposite, that he may make some mistakes along the way, but his core beliefs were solid and strong, and it turns out they are neither. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. 
Number three. This is the same Dr. Fauci who in, 19, in 2012 said that even if a pandemic occurred, the research was worth it. He has always been an advocate of gain-of-function research, and he said even if it were to leak from a lab, infect a scientist, and cause a pandemic. Gotcha. More proof Anthony Fauci is fibbing and thinks we won't understand the facts because we're not scientists. The most overrated doctor in American history gets blown up by the explosive report in The Intercept. 900 pages. Now let's see if his admirers will ask him anything about it. We will, and we'll explain. Number two. Climate change poses an existential mm -hmm. threat to our lives, to our economy, mm -hmm. and the threat is here. It's not going to get any better. The question, can't it get worse? We I can stop it from getting worse. Ida hits and Joe says that means more money for, you guessed it, climate change. It means my irresponsible reconciliation package that Joe Biden wants so bad, he's going to try to jam it down our throats. What stands in his way? The facts and Joe Manchin. Number one. For days now, we have been reporting on these planes sitting on the runway in Mazari Sharif in the north of Afghanistan with Americans waiting to bring them home but unable to leave. The State Department has refused to give them approval to land anywhere. The State Department says you need to find another destination country and it can't be the U.S. either. Wow, working against Americans. That's what the State Department is doing as private citizens and retired vets mount efforts to rescue SIVs and citizens from the Taliban. And now we have confirmation. Is the State Department standing in their way? Their reasoning is pathetic and the stakes could not be higher. And even Democrats are enraged. Uh, Gerard Baker, uh, uh, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I loved your column. I want to get to in a second. But these new revelations about these private entities of these retired vets putting together these, uh, these escape hatches, being stopped by the State Department, can you believe it's come to this? Yeah, I'm afraid I can. Um, you know, I think the you know the, the 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 message that we've been getting from the Biden administration for the last few weeks has been constantly, uh, I mean, frankly, just a continuation of falsehoods and misrepresentations. Right? They have got. Uh, they've made an unbelievable mess uh, of this withdrawal from Afghanistan, and they have had to try to cover it up. And I think that anything that cuts against their uh, message, their cuts against their message that they, remember they, the government, remember that infamous press conference that Biden gave us last week where he described the, the, the mission as an extraordinary success yeah. because because the U.S. had got all these people out. That was obviously complete fiction. But anything that cuts against that and, so, and anything that doesn't uh, – that does, can't be directly attributable to the government, to the administration, to the State Department in helping uh, get out, I think they don't – they're not interested in. I think they don't want to do it. They don't want to – they don't want other people to show up actually how inadequate their own performance has been, and they want to continue to sort of trumpet this completely fake story that they've had an amazing success. So I'm afraid it is. It's all too believable. But, you know, the thing is, Gerard, you know, one American left behind is a tragedy. Not only that, politically, it could be fatal. He's left at least 100. Most people trying to get them out say it's way more. I just talked to the congressman from Oklahoma, and he's telling me, Congressman Mullins, and he says he's working on 75. So if that's just one guy working on 75, I've talked to another one of these private contractors who said he believes it's over 1,000. I mean, how does someone yeah. how does someone deal with this and think it's going to go well, away? The, We're going to talk about climate change. Well, look, the administration acknowledged. You know, we, we remember again a couple of weeks ago we were told there were four thousand 
uh, Americans there. Then then they seem to get a thousand or so out, and then magically the number had come down to the low hundreds. They they acknowledged at some point they just didn't know. They acknowledged that it was difficult that some people don't register, you know, with the U.S. Embassy. That there are people in parts of the country that are very inaccessible. There are people, uh, you know, who who have, have not maybe you know haven't filled in the documentation that they want to do to leave. So they don't know. They don't. So so of course of course there aren't a hundred people there left. A hundred or two hundred people there left. Of course there are many many probably hundreds possibly. As you say thousands of Americans there, and they don't know. And the truth of, but the fundamental point, Brian, is they were so keen to escape, and they were so keen to have this done by the anniversary of uh, the 20th anniversary of 9/11 that they just cave to the Taliban. These are the people. You know, the Taliban are celebrating. The Taliban have scored an incredible victory over the United States here. Uh, we gave it years to them. after having been routed, having been routed by the U.S. and its allies, they're now celebrating because yeah, because the U.S. basically is in this position of just handing the country over to them and actually placing Americans in their charge, in their care, and then pleading with the Taliban to let them go. I mean, as, it couldn't be a worse scenario. As the Gitmo 5 from Bo Bergdahl exchange uh, take over major ministerial positions, and you have al-Qaeda uh, affiliates taking over uh, the equivalent of the FBI, Haqqani Network members, in, the, in their namesake. This has led Tony Blair to say this, cut 11. America has decided that for the foreseeable future, it is a very limited appetite for military engagement, which gives our allies anxiety and our opponents a belief that our time is over. Is that the perception around the country, around the world? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the look, the uh, it's it, you know, part of you wants to kind of wants to kind of say, well, this is what you wanted to the Europeans, to the British and to the, the others. They they didn't like Donald Trump. They didn't like what he was doing. They objected, remember, when he pulled American forces uh, out of out of out of Kurdistan, out of out of the Kurdish areas um, uh, in the region, and they didn't like Donald Trump. And then Joe Biden comes in, and it's all oh, America's back, isn't it wonderful? And we're so pleased that we've got a you know a, a great guy again in the White House, and he just completely abandons them and deserts them and treats them way worse than Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump wanted uh, the NATO allies to do more in their own defense. He pressed the Germans who do nothing, let's be perfectly honest. Most of the NATO allies rely on U.S. military uh, and, and get a free ride out of it. And Trump tried to get them to do more, and they hated him. They hated him for it because he was so, uh, you know, he was so determined to get a better deal for the United States out of it. Then in comes Joe Biden. Joe Biden just abandons these people. He abandons, with, you know, in the middle of the night, literally Bagram Airport, the, 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 the British were not told anything about American plans to get, about the, the the immediacy with which the United States got out of got out of Afghanistan. Look, the U.S. has lost two thousand troops in Afghanistan. Britain, the British have lost four hundred troops in Afghanistan. They have been treated like they just don't they don't matter. They just they're just irrelevant. It's way worse than anything Donald Trump ever did to any of the allies, and they are furious about it. And they are, by the way, they're all talking now about you know this is this is going to have long-standing consequences for the United States in terms of its ability to get anything done in the world. People are looking more to China. They're looking more to, you know, the rest of the world. They just don't trust Joe Biden. Uh, absolutely not. You know, in China, uh, we were looking to unify Europe uh, against China. Now, good luck with that. You talk about uh, Joe Biden not having any core principles. And abortion is case in point. In what way did this Texas abortion case really galvanize this column for you? You know, uh, you know. Look, the first thing to say is people can have different views about abortion. I understand that people are. Ca- I'm a Catholic, um, you know, but I and I, you know, I, I accept the te- church's teaching on abortion, abortion. But I also understand that it's very, 
you know, it's a very complex, it is a complex moral issue. And, and, you know, while, you know, life, in my view, does begin at conception, I also do understand the, you know, the, the pain that, that unwanted pregnancies can mean to people. So, so, so no, one's, no one's dismissing anybody's right to have a dissenting moral view on, on these issues. The problem is that Joe Biden's moral views always seem, always on any issue, seem to take second place to his politi- to political expediency. On any single issue you can talk about, abortion is a good example. He, Joe Biden used to say, like a lot of, you know, sort of pro-choice, supposedly pro-choice Democrats, Catholics, Democrats would say, look, I'm personally against abortion. I personally think it's wrong, but I don't have the right to impose my will on anybody else. That's now gone. Now it's like, no, full-throated support for abortion rights. And on issue after issue throughout his career, Brian, this is the Biden pattern. He simply sacrifices. He seems to have no no uh, principles, no values that are non-negotiable, that will not, that are not in the end to be basically beaten into shape by his by his political party, by his support for his political party, by his loyalty to his political party. Now, you know, loyalty to a political party is a good thing. You need that. But you need also to see some evidence that politicians have some principles, have some values that will withstand pressure from, uh, from their own party and from the demands of their party. And Joe Biden has just never, whether it is on, you know, his positions on, he has moved exactly in line with his party. He was a Bill Clinton mod-supporting kind of centrist Democrat, new Democrat in the 1990s, you know, and now he's this radical progressive who will support anything that the dominant the dominant faction in his party supports. And I think that is his – to be honest with you, I don't think it's his age or his, you know, advancing, you know, cognitive decline or some people call it senility that's the problem. I think this is the core problem with Joe Biden. He doesn't really – he hasn't got the moral courage to stand up for anything that his party will oppose. And that – no president can do. No president, no politician in the end can succeed without having firm, a firm anchor of at least some principles which will enable him to stand up to the pressures from his own party. You know, allegedly Barack Obama stood up against the Iraq war when most of his party was for it. You point out in your column, then they talk about Bill Clinton having his sister soldier moment, taking on a black rapper who wanted violence. Uh, said that was wrong. They took on his party in doing that, theoretically. And Joe Biden hasn't done that. In fact, he goes along. Now he's a believer that climate change causes tornadoes, which he doesn't think we call them tornadoes anymore, uh, which was a bizarre stutter that he had. Uh, tornadoes, we used yeah. to call them. But now he yeah. says every time there's every time there's a flood, it's climate change. We need more money. Yeah. And look, look, you know, we, we, again, he used to be again back in the 1990s. Remember the famous crime bill, uh, you know, which was very controversial on the left of the Democratic Party, and opposed by many. The welfare reform, which is controversial on the left of the Democratic Party. Biden supported all those things happily, enthusiastically. The crime bill, in particular, which you know, whether you like it or not, was effective in reducing crime, did result in a lot of African Americans going to jail, which you know, a lot of people, uh, African Americans, uh, understandably, were very uh, were very upset about. So, but Biden supported that measure. Now he spends all his time. Talking Talking about you know systemic racism and uh, white privilege and the um, and white white oppression and throughout you know and it, it's just there's just not there's just nothing there Brian there's no I agree. I in the column there's a giant hole where his principles should be wherever his party wants him to go he says I'll go where if the party says jump he says how high this is not leadership it's followership and it is disastrous for the country.
And the one thing you have to pay against Trump, he's not following anybody. Uh, to the consternation of his own party a lot of times, right. taking on some stalwarts. You may not like a lot of what Trump does, but he's never going to do anything. He's never going to stop doing something because he thinks because he fears it will upset uh, the dominant wing in his party. Gerard, thanks so much. He's editor-at-large of The Wall Street Journal. Uh, his column, uh, Does Joe Biden Have Any Core Principles, is out. We just discussed it, but go get it or download it. Uh, Gerard, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Great pleasure. You got it. one 408 7669 We come up. When we come back at the bottom of the hour, General David Petraeus will be with us. In the, and we'll end with uh, more to know, perhaps. But we will get your calls, and I promise to get your emails. Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. one 408 7669 Let's go out to Jerry uh, is in Chicago. Hey, Jerry. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call, brother. Listen, I'm commenting on the idiot in chief saying that climate change is the biggest crisis we have right now. Yep. And you said it. How... Is legislation going to change the weather? What could they do to possibly change the weather? What is Simon Bar Sinister going to be out there with his weather machine and change the weather? Well, you the, know, it's getting ridiculous. You said it. Every time it rains, it's climate change. Well, here it is. Check out this article by Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, he's a he's a climatologist, and he says Atlantic hurricanes are not becoming more frequent. In fact, the frequency of hurricanes making landfall in the U.S. has declined over the last hundred plus years. Airplanes and satellites have increased the number of storms because we're better at seeing them. And he also said the frequency of Category 3 hurricanes making landfall since 1900 also trending downward. He wants to walk around, see a hurricane, and blame the combustion engine and Republicans. Well, it's really getting out of hand. When is somebody going to stand up and actually say that? How could legislation change the weather? No idea. Good point, Jerry. I understand your passion, too. Don, WNIS, Virginia Beach. Hey, Don. Yeah, uh, Brian, on on the climate change thing again, um, in addition to laughing at us about the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, Russia and China are just hilariously rolling over on the the, uh, climate change. Russia just announced they're sending 400,000 oil field service workers to the Arctic to drill oil wells. They're building 15 cities to house them. China just made one of the biggest oil discoveries inside their country in history, bigger than anything that has been found in the Middle East. So um, talk to me about the fact that I live in Virginia Beach, We've been getting smoke from the wildfires out west all the way over here. The United States creates about 20% of the world's pollution. So if China and Russia are still on the oil kick... Um, Doesn't matter what and, we and do. The wind, and the wind blows west to east, you know, it's it's a joke. It's just a pathetic joke and, and believe, it's an embarrassment. And, and the other thing it. is, Don, it, even if China's discovery, that's new to me. I did not pick up on that. But even if China's going to buy it, if they don't have it, they're just going to do it. And they would love for us to need rare earth for this big conversion to electric vehicles, which need, for the most part, coal to power the uh, plants that are going to power your cars. They would love for us do it to do what we're doing, no longer become 
the new leader in oil and gas. They would love for us to stop fracking. So would the Middle East. And that, guess what, makes us susceptible insecure insecurity in every way, shape, or form. It makes us more dependent on the chaos, which is that region of the world that we're trying to uh, detach from at a dizzying rate. So there's a few things going on. I mean, there's some things that happen, and and it just doesn't break your way. If you look at Katrina, President Trump, Trump Bush was slow to realize how bad it was. They were a bad local government, terrible in communication, not like Florida. The president was on vacation. Karl Rove was off. And you make some mistakes, and then natural disasters happen. But if you look at Biden's problems, these are all Biden-created. I'll ignore the border. I'll undo Donald Trump's uh, all of the things that ended up working over the last six years. Then, with the pandemic in place, I will take his vaccine, blame him for it, and then polarize the, the, uh, the dissemination and the distribution of it. And then mock people for not taking it. And then not giving us a heads up when the variant was coming. And then trying to crack down in odd ways and making booster proclamations. All his doing. And I don't need to go into detail about Afghanistan, all his doing, his lack of communication with our allies, the way we left, deciding to parry the blame and declare a success. Nobody buys it. And now he has a bipartisan plan that is agreed upon that he might want to take as a victory. But instead, his own party won't let him because they want three point five trillion. So even his victories are being hamstrung by his own party because of his lack of leadership. All self-inflicted. You can't predict Ida. But to use that to try to jam the new Green Deal down our throats piecemeal while denying it is not going to work. When we come back, General David Petraeus on the chaos we're now witnessing in Afghanistan and how we got there days from 9-11. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's, as you know, all week long, we've been looking back at 9-11, 20 years since that fateful day that we'll never forget. Always re- people remember they were old enough uh, where they were at this time. Time for me to bring on a man who's been consequential ever since, General David Petraeus, arguably the greatest general of our generation, but still going, not retired, former commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan, uh, and as well as uh, leading the forces in Iraq, uh, especially the surge. General, where were you when... The towers were hit when the Pentagon was hit when Flight 93 went down. Uh, I was actually deployed in Bosnia uh, at that time, Brian. I was the I was a one-star general and the assistant chief of staff of operations for the NATO stabilization force there, and then also had a U.S. hat that was engaged in the war criminal hunt. And that organization subsequently did the first counterterrorism operation uh, after 9/11. Actually, it was in Sarajevo. Uh, even before the invasion of Afghanistan. What were the first orders you got as as you and did you watch like all of us on TV? Well, I was actually waiting for a helicopter to go back to Sarajevo. We were with the Nord Pole Brigade, uh, Brigade of Polish and other forces from Northern Europe. 
we just happened to be in a, a room that had a TV on as we waited for the helicopter to arrive. And like many others, we thought, wow, what an incredibly terrible mistake that this plane on a clear blue sky day would fly into one of the World Trade uh, Towers. And then, of course, the second plane hit, and we knew that we were in for a really significant change. We got back to Sarajevo, uh, gathered the staff and commander and all the rest of that, and uh, immediately uh, there was a sense of strategic picking time bomb that I think is very important to remember as the context for what happened subsequent to 9-11. There was a sense that this was just the first of what were expected to be many more exactly. attacks on the order of 9-11. And so force protection became an intense concern. And then as the intelligence turned on, again, this U.S. hat that I had was part of a special mission unit organization. And as the intelligence turned on, all of a sudden we realized that there were nonprofits in Bosnia that were facilitating the travel of Pakistanis uh, through Bosnia and into the Schengen zone and a host of other security risks that we had not been aware of and which we had to address in the subsequent months uh, following the 9-11 attacks. Very, very serious moment, uh, needless to say. Again, and around the world, as America came to grips with what this was and what might be in the future. And I think that was the real concern, right. was that the sense that there are other plots out there that are also uh, going to be revealed, and we need to uncover them. Uh, part of getting uh, taken down that the original Al Qaeda was stopping that next attack, which uh, most likely we found out was going to happen. That was September 14th when he stood in that fire engine when he went down, was left to the World Trade Center. This was October 7th, cut 37. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. And they were effective combined with the Northern Alliance. It will be a matter of weeks before the Taliban fell. What were your observations? Where were you? Well, still in Bosnia. That was a full year deployment. Uh, what turned out to be something like six or seven years of my final uh, 10 or 11 years in uniform. And, you know, it was really quite an extraordinary campaign, as everyone recognizes, that these handful of really exceptional CIA officers and special forces operators could work with the Northern Alliance leaders and topple an entire regime, uh, shatter them with air power, uh, using the Northern Alliance forces to to bring the Taliban to mass. They had to mass to defend the key areas. Uh, and then, of course, we could clobber them with our close air support. And they then ultimately were shattered, retreated into Pakistan, uh, as did uh, most of al-Qaeda, although it took a bit longer. And, of course, we had the operation subsequent to that in Tora Bora, which sadly did not nab uh, Osama bin Laden immediately, Rather, he was able to get away. And, of course, we didn't bring him to justice uh, until the late spring of 2011 when, coincidentally, I was the commander uh, of the International Security Assistance Force and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. 
I, I never thought we wanted to be in Afghanistan for a long time. We wanted to make sure it wasn't a, a launching base for al-Qaeda. Nobody wanted to settle and control the country, especially because you all went to school and what happened to the Russians. Uh, they were then the Soviets. But after parrying and, uh, and uh, to the Iraq war, it was time to go back and focus on what Barack Obama says was the good war. And you were tasked to run the surge. Here is December 2009, cut 38. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. And it would be yours. It would be original General McChrystal had some turbulence with a Rolling Stone story. They would call on General David Petraeus. The president asked you, go. What happened with that surge, and would you term it a success? Well, we were given certain missions, and we actually accomplished those missions, you know, and it, in the wake of the so-called Afghanistan papers or whatever, which are actually all publicly available uh, IG reports. Uh, if you, I went back and looked at all the statements I made during that time, and, and I, they were quite heavily qualified, and I stand by everything that I said. We were basically tasked to halt the momentum of the Taliban, keep in mind that they were on the march, and they had been ever since they had regrouped in Pakistan some years earlier, uh, then to roll back the Taliban in really critical areas where they threatened Route 1, the critical ring road of Afghanistan, and some other very essential uh, cities, population centers, and, and, and infrastructure locations, to accelerate the development of the Afghan security forces, uh, to establish a transition concept and program so that we could then actually begin the transition of security tasks in select districts under provinces to the Afghan security forces and select Afghan institutions. Uh, and we actually did do all of that in addition to ensuring the core mission, which was to make sure that al-Qaeda reestablished yeah. a sanctuary on Afghan soil. Uh, which was, again, that, that and something we tried to do repeatedly, by the way, and have tried to do uh, over the years many times, and to provide a platform for the conduct of the so-called regional counterterrorism campaign. The most public and well-known uh, such operation was the one that brought Osama bin Laden to justice, uh, as I said, in the final few months of my time over there. So, again, I think we accomplished all those missions. I think that's beyond uh, really debate. Um, the, what was interesting, though, Brian, is that because we did, first of all, want to keep the footprint in Afghanistan, which I think was wrong, uh, we should have immediately put the right organizational architecture on the ground and started to train the Afghan security forces very early on. Because we were always shooting behind the target relative to the, to the Taliban in Afghanistan, we didn't even get the inputs right. In Afghanistan, in the late 2010, that was about six months into my time as the commander. It was really due to the commitment that the president had made uh, a year or so earlier. The additional forces that you heard announced in his speech at West Point, uh, and General McChrystal got the concepts going. But by inputs, I mean we didn't we didn't have the right organizational architecture. That sounds arcane. It's actually very important. We didn't have the right overarching strategy. We didn't have the right uh, level of resources, and not just military resources, but uh, diplomats, development workers, intelligence officers, uh, folks associated with the rule of law, DOJ, DHS, all the rest. 
um, and uh, the right level of money, nor the right level of preparation of our forces or the right leaders. And we finally had it by then, but of course we only had it for about six months because as you heard in that speech, which announced the buildup, there was also the announce of the drawdown date. And so we were always racing against, you know, let's see if we can get as much as we can done while we have this level of forces, this level of resources. Mm -hmm. But certainly uh, the focus that shifted to Iraq very early uh, after actually taking down the Taliban and, and expelling al-Qaeda from Afghan soil meant that, in the words of Admiral uh, Mullen, a great chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, that in Iraq we did what we must, in Afghanistan we did what we could. Uh, and that characterized the Afghanistan campaign until the end of that uh, Obama administration policy review, which did enable us for the first time right. to get the input right, but which then also, of course, uh, announced the withdrawal process. And then almost to the day, a few weeks before 9-11, August 31st, cut 41. The United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. We completed one of the biggest airlifts in history, with more than 120,000 people evacuated to safety. As they evacuated and the Taliban take over, do you feel like you lost, or do you feel like you chose to give the Taliban back the country? Well, we were through, um, and it's I think we'll have to see whether we actually, quote, ended 20 years of war or if the endless war will continue. Uh, it's still not clear whether there will be some kind of civil war or some kind of insurgency against the Taliban. And only, you know, weeks, months, even years will tell. Uh, the Taliban face a very difficult task, and that is to govern this challenging country and they may discover that it's much easier to be an insurgent than it is to be running the government, especially if all yeah. of the country's assets around the world are frozen. They have no access to IMF or World Bank support. And the major donor nations that have traditionally uh, provided three quarters of their budget, the U.S., Japan and, and other countries, members of the coalition, uh, that they will have a very, very difficult time. And it's by no means clear that other countries uh, will make that up, say, for example, China or Pakistan or uh, Iran or Russia. So I think it's a very uncertain future. It's a little bit, again, like the opposition politician who's, right. you know, on the back bench and can criticize and, you know, lob IEDs at the party in power. But all of a sudden, they're the party in power. And we're going to have to see how they actually do govern this country, whether it is a you know, a government of reconciliation, right. certainly the interim government that has been announced uh, is not. When you have the Minister of Interior, who's a leader of the Haqqani Network, which is an organization designated as a terrorist entity by the United States, that doesn't fill you with great confidence. And beyond that, of course, we have to see what does the Islamic State do. Their ranks have been swollen by the prison breaks that the Taliban orchestrated as they made their way to Kabul. Uh, 2,000 strong now uh, in the Afghanistan and Pakistan region. They're the ones, of course, who carried out that horrific suicide right. bombing at the entry control point uh, to the airport in which 13 of our men and women in uniform and nearly 200 uh, innocent right. Afghan civilians were killed. So a very uncertain future uh, at best. 
So, General, you spend your free time studying war, studying great officers, studying military events, going back in history, uh, studying this, studying past, studying present, the world wars we fought, the ones we watched. And you have civilians who don't do any of that work because they, have, they don't have a specialization in war, make the ultimate decisions. It's got to be frustrating. But to bring you to 9-11... Uh, that day, as the families look and think about the lives lost and others think about how we've changed, can you honestly say today to those families, to Americans listening, that we are safer today than we were 20 years ago? Well, there certainly is no organization uh, that has the capability and the sanctuary that al-Qaeda enjoyed uh, in which it planned the 9-11 attacks, again, on Afghan soil under the Taliban, and was able to carry those out. Um, And that sanctuary is gone. Al-Qaeda is a shadow of its former self, still dangerous. Uh, The threat has metastasized, uh, as the Biden administration has correctly uh, described it. But these are lots and lots of small extremist entities, all of which do need to be watched, all of which do need pressure, They need to be disrupted, degraded, and by and large, with the exception of Afghanistan, we'll do a, you know, this will be an offshore, if you will, uh, campaign to keep an eye on them and pressure. Uh, Generally, we have troops committed in locations, but very small numbers, but with drones, the potential for close air support uh, and intelligence fusion to help host nation partners in Iraq keep an eye on the Islamic State in northeastern Syria, keep an eye again on also on uh, the Islamic State. In, back in Somalia, the administration correctly moved back in there, having seen those troops removed by the previous administration. Very small number, but very important. Same all throughout Af- uh, Africa, where there's a number of different Islamist extremist organizations. Some are al-Qaeda affiliates, yep. some Islamic State, some independent. So I I think, by and large, that that situation, together with the advances, the very significant advances that we have made uh, in the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, and so forth, um, do indeed make it certainly very unlikely that an Islamist extremist organization uh, could carry out anything remotely like the 9-11 attacks. In fact, you know, what's the biggest measure of how we have done over the 20 years of war against Islamist extremists, it's that less 100 or so Americans in that entire time have been killed by attackers who were linked to Islamist causes. And most of them, by the way, were homegrown. These are self-recruits who watch too many Al-Waki videos on YouTube and that kind of thing. That still exists and is a concern uh, among the domestic extremist uh, uh, threats that we face. But I tend to think that the actions that we took over the past 20 years, not all of which yep. were, were ones that took more bad guys off the streets than they created, to be sure. We have had successes and also missteps, mistakes. Uh, we've had lessons learned the hard way in a right. number of cases. But by and large, I think we are in a better position relative mm-hmm. to Islamist extremists mm-hmm. now than we were you know, the day before 9-11. General David Betrayas, thanks for your reflections. Thanks for you, what you did. And uh, we we got to be, uh, hopefully I continue to talk to you as we uh, turn the corner on our next chapter. General David Betrayas, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Back in a moment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. I got to tell you, I'm on Tucker tonight, 8 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, amongst our guests, we're going to really be opening up what happened when those 13 lost their lives and 18 ended up in uh, a military hospital with the explosion and suicide bomber at uh, Kabul Airport. Also want to tell you, uh, the president and freedom fighter will be coming out. It is uh, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle to save America's soul. It's coming out in November, but I'm already selling tickets for my winning the war on history tour. I'll be in Charleston, West Virginia, Sunday, November 7th. I'll be in uh, Ponte Vedra, Florida, Friday, December 3rd. Uh, in Orlando, I'll be there on Sunday, on November 21st. And in Clearwater, Florida, I'll be there Saturday, December 4th. So I want you to go to BrianKilme.com, order your tickets, get your seats. Those are VIP opportunities. I get a chance to talk to you. See you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.